It's always such a joy to be with you and grab your Bibles. I will be in 1 Peter, beginning chapter 3 this morning. And we're going to cover verses 1 through 7. So a couple, a couple crisis points this morning. You know, so last night, it's a particular crisis when you're a pastor and you love basketball on the East Coast. It is just painful. And when you like watching the North Carolina Duke game, there's also a crisis too. There's sometimes when you preach where you just, you know, the crisis has to do with, I'm going to have to not say some things. It's one of the hardest things about preaching the Word of God. There's so much that could be said, that can be said on a given Sunday. And in particular, as you come to a passage where there's, there's kind of built-in controversy and difficulty and tensions, uh, maybe those dynamics are present a little more even than usual. Because we're going to talk this morning about um, a marriage shaped by grace. And so as we, as we come into 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going we're gonna to hear God, we're going to hear Peter address both wives and husbands. And so if you haven't been with us, we journey through this book. You know, what we've seen kind of take place so far is we've seen Peter talk about this, this wonderful, blessed calling of the people of God, that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so he goes on to say, in light of your calling, there's a conduct that you are to have as the people of God. So our calling as followers of Jesus affects our conduct in every sphere of life. And so you see in chapter 2 this call to let, let your conduct be excellent, all of your conduct be excellent among those who don't know God, so that even through your conduct they might be turned to the grace of God, to the personal work of Jesus as the source of what is different within you. And so over the last few weeks, we've been going through a, kind of a mini-series within the book on submission to authority, because this term, be subject, is used three times kind of right on top of one another. So we've looked at what does it mean to be subject to the government, to the governing bodies that God has put in place in the world with all of its tension and all of its needed clarification. There's this call to be those, because of Christ within us, who are subject to the government, knowing that ultimately any authority has behind it the ultimate good supreme authority of God. And secondly, we're called to be subject to earthly bosses, a slave-master relationship. And so in the context of the workplace, so you go from the public square and the state to kind of a smaller, little more private circle of the workplace. And in the workplace, we're called to submit to, to be subject to bosses, both the crooked and the kind, compelled by the example of Jesus. As he died to his own rights, submitted to the Father's will, and we've been now made his children and have his spirit within us. So now the circle becomes even more private. The most private, the most central relationship in humanity, the, the home, the marriage, and the same term is used. That's what we're going to see right at the beginning. So we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Initially, I was going to take two weeks and do wives today, husbands next week. It could have been some good to that, but I think it's actually more helpful to see these situated right next to one another because what happens is the call to husbands uh, softens, clarifies, and helps what specifically in our cultural moment feels like this call that is, is really difficult to stomach. It's so counterculture, but that's the point in all of this is that Christians, that you're different. 
You serve, you serve a holy God who's different than anything, any category. He's transcendent. He's other than everything this world knows, other than anything or anyone, and now you're his child, and so you are called to be other than the world as well. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 7. I actually want to take you back up to chapter 2, verse 25, and just introduce chapter 3, 1 through 7 in this way. I'll kind of personalize verse 25 for us as we go into chapter 3. It says this, As those wandering sheep who have returned to this shepherd and overseer of our souls, now we pick up in chapter 3, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord or Master. And you are her children, if you do, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's the word of God for us this morning. So the, the mega principle we're going to kind of stand underneath and journey through this morning as well as the rest of the book is that, that the work of Jesus Christ shapes our conduct in every sphere of life, every single one. And as we think about relationships, I heard this from a pastor, Alistair Begg, I was listening to him this week, you know, one point that he made just in reference to all relationships is that the most important thing that we should think about in any relationship is our relationship with God. So whether you this morning are single and you want to be married or whatever context of life we find ourselves in, married or not, the most important thing about how we view relationships starts back with our relationship with God. Let me clarify what I mean by that. How does my relationship with God shape the way I pursue this relationship or whether I pursue this relationship? That's one way to kind of apply what I'm saying. How does my relationship with God shape my relationship with this person? You see the difference between those two? So as I look at my relationships, how does my relationship with God shape the way I do or don't pursue this relationship? And if I find myself in a relationship, how does my relationship with God affect the way or shape the way this relationship takes form? All of that starts with God. Does my relationship with this person deepen my relationship with God? Does our relationship display the nature and character of God? In that last one, we find really the, the essence of what this book is about, that we are pilgrims. So we're here temporarily, journeying through. And while we're here, our conduct, our life is to be consistent with the one who has saved us, who we know, who we serve we're called to be different so that our conduct, our character, and our relationships display the nature and character of God, that many would, would come to know him, to know how excellent he is, the power of his, 
saving grace, his changing grace in our lives. And so that call is the same. Your God is different, so your relationships, your marriages should look different. And so this, this call to wives, it starts with wives here, and there's a few other primary passages in the, the New Testament. I'm not going to give you a ton of cross-references because I just don't have time. We preach through the book of Ephesians, and Ephesians chapter 5 is largely you know, one of the most well-known sections dealing with marriage and, and the interplay between husband and wife. I'd encourage you to you can find that message, not because it's awesome, just because the content I think is helpful. I think that one particular is on YouTube or our Facebook channel. You can find it. I'm going to repeat some of what I shared in that message. But the primary emphasis or command to, to wives in this section is, I'll say it this way, to arrange yourself underneath the leadership of your husband and adorn yourself with true beauty. That's the call within this section, just put plainly. And so we've talked about the be subject or submit to is this military term of, of aligning or ordering yourself underneath another. And so the picture within the marriage relationship is that a wife is to come underneath the leadership of her Husband. So, and Peter uses the word likewise in verse one, likewise wives. So he, he depicts there's a continuity between what was just addressed, what's spoken of in the right before chapter three. There's a continuity, otherwise, he wouldn't have used the word likewise. In the same manner as you submit to the state, it's your employer with humility and with willingness. For the same reason you submit to the state and your employer, for the sake of God, likewise. Wives, be subject to your husbands. And hang in there with me. If this is foreign to you especially, just hang in there with me. Trust the word of God, and I'm going to get to your husbands in a little bit, all right? Submit to, arrange yourself under your husband. So Ephesians 5, Colossians 3.18, Titus 2, 4 through 5, all use this same term in the context of the marriage relationship. Wives, come underneath the authority and leadership of your own husbands in your marriage. So this is your own husband. So the Bible doesn't depict or call women to submit to every husband. It doesn't just have this general broad call for all women to submit to all men. There's really only two spheres where the Bible speaks to this relationship of authority. One is in the home and one is in local church leadership in the pastoral office. But that picture is the same. But it's not this general call for women to be subservient to men. It's not that way at all. But in the context of marriage, there's a call for order. There's an order that God has put in place. And the mega principle in marriage is this, that God has designed marriage in such a way, please don't forget this, that maximizes his glory and maximizes our husband and wife, our joy and blessing and benefit. But the challenge is we don't often want to embrace the design because it's what? Because it's other than. It's other than often what we want to do. It's other than what we see in the culture expressed as that which is good, but God is the one who designed marriage. And we see in Ephesians 5, I don't have time to kind of do it justice, but the mystery of marriage is this, that human marriage was God's idea from the very beginning of time at the first marriage. And at that first marriage, God had in mind that human marriage would depict uniquely the relationship between Jesus and his people. That's in the forever mind of God. Not just some anecdotal, um, it just happened upon some illustration in the New Testament. Like, hey, marriage would be a good way to demonstrate the gospel. That was in the forever mind of God from the garden. 
that the relationship of Jesus and his people would be displayed in marriage. As a husband lays down his life for his wife, loves her the way Christ loved the church, and as a wife comes underneath the leadership of her husband, and we are naturally given to be fiercely independent. And we talked about this with the whole submission thing from the beginning. Like, we've all said the term, like, hey, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. Like, we've all said that. If you don't remember saying it, just be sure you have. You just forgot about it. But we are fiercely independent people. So the notion of being subject to government, to bosses, particularly those who are crooked and mean, or for a wife to be subject to a fallen man, all of that kind of hits our natural inclination to, to be self-reliant and to be fiercely independent. But we'll never truly understand the perfection of God's design until we submit to it and in faithful obedience follow it. But let me unpack along the way a couple of potential objections in the heart to this call. Again, the call is arrange yourself underneath the leadership of your husband, adorn yourself with true beauty. What are some of the objections? I think there are many, but one of them is just your husband's sin. The call here is for wives to submit themselves to a fallen man. That's hard. That's why later on it talks about don't do good. Don't be fearful of anything that's frightening. The best I can tell, that thing that's frightening is submitting to a human being. But the thing that allows us, allows a wife to do that, is faith in God, not faith in a man. Because behind him, just like behind the government, is the supreme good order of a father who knows best for his children. So our faith, our trust ultimately is in him. But maybe the objection sounds something like this. You don't know my husband, Matt. You don't know my husband. I don't get to a, bit, a little bit just the issue of maybe abuse and overreach of leadership. But let me just kind of plainly kind of deal with this, this objection. Well, you just don't know my husband. Well, maybe I know him a little bit better than you think. Let me guess. He, do, he doesn't love you the way that he should. Like he's not as sensitive as he should be. Not as mindful of your needs as he should be. Like he doesn't, he doesn't lead with the type of intentionality and consistency that you think your family needs. Maybe he's flippant with his words. He doesn't share much about his feelings, kind of leaving you in the dark and not emotionally cared for. He doesn't use his time in such a way that makes his, his life one with purpose. He doesn't lead with clarity and conviction. I probably know him a little bit better than you think. Because in some ways, in many ways, I struggle with the same thing, right? But the challenge is within the context of marriage. It doesn't say respect or submit to your husband to the extent that he finds you find him to be respectable. That's where this takes faith to trust in the, the order and design of God. And quick P.S., the family of God, as we operate together in a larger family, allows other men particularly to be alongside your husband in that journey to help him grow in the areas that you simply draw on his attention to his failure will not. And nor will you be the spirit of God to him in a way that's going to bring change. 
So God's directive is be subject to your husband. And in fact, Peter's addressing first century Christian women who find themselves married to a non-Christian husband. That's really probably the, the primary context here. So you have these women in the first century coming to faith in Jesus because the gospel is spreading, and they look over and they find themselves married to a man who doesn't know God, who doesn't follow Jesus. So there'd be a whole host of questions that would come up. One of them might even been like, am I superior to him? Because I have a faith that he doesn't possess. Should I divorce him? Because we don't share in common a savior. And so it seems pretty clear that Peter's addressing some of those unspoken, maybe for him it was some spoken questions. What should I do? God's directive is arrange yourself under his leadership to demonstrate your new life in Christ. To demonstrate that you're different. He says, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they're, they're not in the faith, demonstrated by this next part, that they may be one, one to salvation without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So Proverbs, in kind of a funny way, likens a nagging wife to a dripping faucet. Now, we have a lot of reactions maybe to dripping faucets. How many of you have ever experienced the, just the nightmare that is a dripping faucet? Okay, not a nagging wife. Put your hands down if you did that. It's too late. But. The dripping faucet in a house. One of the things a dripping faucet doesn't do is it doesn't make you thirsty. You know what it causes you to do? You want, you want to turn with some of vengeance. You want to fix or stop the faucet from dripping. I think it's a really good illustration. Because what Peter's proposing is that if you move toward your husband, you, you submit to his leadership, as opposed to trying to win him with your words, which will never happen, you're never going to nag someone into the kingdom of God, particularly your husband. Instead, what will happen is if you, through your behavior, your conduct, your life lived, it's different from the world that would respond in just the way you want to respond, what's going to happen is your character will make him thirsty. Your dripping won't make him thirsty for water, namely the water of life. But your holy, set-apart, different behavior will cause him to be thirsty, will cause him to turn to this peculiar light, to be like, from where does your light come? That's kind of the picture, that you would win him without words. Let your preaching be done through your practice. Let your purity and your holiness and your respectfulness be so stunning that it catches his eye and causes him to turn and see where it comes from. As I was praying through the various things I could say, I did cut out some material, so this seems long. Just know that I cut out some. <clears throat> One of the other obstacles I think of every time I preach through this or speak about it is because of the cultural tide that we live in, um, and certainly in this sexual revolution where issues of gender and sexuality are just trying to be erased, that one of the things that we have to overcome is the notion that order determines value. And so in, in the scriptures, the picture is that the order of God in the context of marriage and the context of local church, <clears throat> excuse me, is not a value proposition. 
So when you're talking about being subject or aligning yourself underneath authority, it doesn't mean that coming underneath someone means that you're, you're underneath them in the realm of your value or worth. And the, the best example to illustrate this is Jesus himself. Because what did Jesus do in relation to his father and his earthly ministry? He submitted himself, the very thing, the very thing of ordering himself underneath the father, submitting to his will, going to the cross, the very thing you're called to in 1 Peter, Jesus did in relation to the father. So are we going to make the argument that Jesus is less valuable than the father? If you do, come see me later. It's not true. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. And it was his joy to willingly submit to the Father that the Father's will might be done. And in that, <clears throat> and now in the human relationship of marriage, there's a way in which, and I use this terminology when I preach through Ephesians, that God's word declares you're equal in value but different in function and order. So in the Christian gospel, the cross was the Father's will for the Son. So you could say it this way. In some measure, as a wife, when you submit yourself to your husband's leadership, you are playing the Jesus role in your marriage by submitting to his leadership and headship. Just like husbands and laying their lives down for their wives play the Jesus role in sacrificing themselves for the, better, the betterment of their wives. <clears throat> In verse 3, Peter goes on to say, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry. And he goes on to describe, let your, let your adornment be that which is imperishable and not perishable. Adorn yourself with true beauty. So maybe the question is, like, what, are you, what are you trying to wear? And so this, this could apply broadly across, you know, whether it be singles or marrieds. What are you going to wear? This doesn't mean that God is opposed to you dressing up or putting on jewelry or looking nice, fancy even. It doesn't mean that Christians have to be frumpy. That's not what this is talking about. The picture is this. Like, don't spend your energy in your life, in your marriage, trying to forever be dolled up on the outside. But focus on the imperishable beauty that won't fade away because at the end of the day, at the end of life, there will be no questioning the fact that age in this life is undefeated. Gravity will have its effect. Amen. Old age will have its effect, right? It's just, I mean, you can surgically enhance yourself up like until you die. But the fact is that we are broken. Strength will fade. Beauty will fade. Muscle will weaken. So everything from toothpaste to mattresses, like, scream to us that there's a way to defy age. And so we invest in all sorts of crazy things as a culture to try to slow, to try to preserve beauty. And so Peter's message for wives in combination with arrangement is the adornment of something that's far greater, a beauty that truly does defy age. The longer you live, the more you see plainly how outward beauty is fading. And interestingly, as you go back, if you just scan back to chapter 1, verse 24, 
Peter says this about the word of God. He says, all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And right above that, it talks about the imperishable word of God. It's the same word that's used here for beauty. So think of it this way. For you women, in light of this passage to you, what Peter, what God is saying to you is build your life. Let your heart pursue the imperishable word of God. And what you will find ultimately is that it builds within you, just like the word of God is imperishable, an imperishable beauty that not even age can snatch away from you. And in fact, some of you have seen this. You've seen it in elderly parents or grandparents, that there's a way in which the physical frame, no mistake about it, will fade. But there is a beauty that actually increases over time. It's captured in the eyes of someone who loves Jesus, like Mrs. Bayes, right, Mr. Bayes? Like this, who this week, her physical frame was failing her. By the grace of God, on Tuesday, she was remarkably not herself. Thursday, she was sitting up eating a full meal. But even in the midst of the brokenness of her physical frame, there's a beauty that is right behind her eyes. As the word of God just propels outwardly, she thinks about songs, and, and I'm quoting a scripture to her, and she finishes my phrase. Why? Because the word of God is imperishable, and beauty built upon the word of God will not perish, ever. It gets better over time. So Peter's like, as a child of God, don't chase the wind. Don't try to capture and preserve and spend your money and your time merely on that which dresses you up externally, but build within your heart a storehouse of beauty that the world and time cannot take away. It's imperishable. Invest in the part of you that God can see. I would say this too, as you think about this picture, go back to the text just for a minute. Verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. I think what's interesting about this is this, this isn't just merely a call to, I don't even know if it is at all, a call to be ladylike. I think you can read this passage and see like this gentle and quiet spirit as a call to be firstly lady, like be a lady, be gentle and quiet. I don't think that's what this is depicting. Here's what I would submit. It seems to be the meaning. Is that because the same word is applied to Jesus, this is more a call to be Christ-like than it is to be ladylike. This meekness, this gentleness, is the expression of Christ within someone, expressed outwardly. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, as Jesus invites people to come to him, all those who are heavy and laden, he says, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm gentle and lowly. It's the same word. I'm meek. And so, ladies, it's a call to be Christ-like. And this connection to the holy women, particularly Sarah in the Old Testament, provides one primary encouragement that I would sum up in this way, that holy women are hopeful. The holy women of old who hoped in God, go back to the text just for a second, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And Sarah didn't lose her voice. There's a, there's a point in 
Genesis where God actually tells Abraham to listen to Sarah's voice. It's not as if she was just a doormat to Abraham. But there's a pulling from her example primarily as a demonstration of a holy woman who hoped in God. So to accentuate what I said earlier, is that, that your submitting to your husband ultimately is in your, an expression of your hope in God, your trust in God, your submission to God himself. Like, I trust you. I trust you to work in my husband's life. I trust even as I submit to, to him that my heart is submitted to you and there's going to be blessing in that. It's not necessarily going to be easy, but there's blessing in this is your design. You're designed to display primarily the relationship between Jesus and his people. But adorn yourself with true beauty, the imperishable beauty, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, as we kind of hit the home stretch of the message, 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, same word is used. So likewise, verse 1, there's continuity between what came before it in this statement, likewise, wives, be subject to your husband. We go through everything we just journeyed through. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. In the same way your wives are being called to be Christ-like in their character and their conduct, you are to be Christ-like in your love and leadership. Let me just pause here for a moment and say this. I don't know every single man in this room, but I want to say a couple things really straightly. I have a little bit more freedom talking to the guys. I have to tread a little bit more lightly when I'm talking to the women because I'm not a woman. I live with a lot of them, but I'm not one. <laughs> and I want to speak just real quickly to the issue of heavy-handed or abusive leadership. That there, there are some men who sin in Christian clothes. They use this command and others in the scriptures with a sad irony as a platform for male dominance. Ladies, I'll say this flat out. If your husband is abusing you, come see us. If there's any sort of emotional or physical abuse in your home, this text does not justify the same. Be sure of that. And we'd be glad to step in and help. Or see someone else that you trust, and may they make their way to us, to authorities, And some of you have experienced, seen, or heard about relationships where a husband has, under Christian disguise, abused this command and distorted God's intended design. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, Confronting Christianity, says this. She says, no one who uses teaching on marriage to justify chauvinism, abuse, or denigration of women has looked at all at Jesus. Our leadership men is to be modeled after the person work of Jesus Christ. So men, if you try to seize an opportunity with this text to demand your wife get permission for her every move, or if you sit around the house wagging your fingers and demanding to be served, if you use this command to invoke fear or create a platform for dominance and wield supposed authority for your own ego, pleasure, and purposes, hear this straightly from me. You are demonstrating the life of a coward, not the life of Christ. I'll look, look you plainly in the eyes. Stop being a chump, confess, and start to obey God. Because when you behold the love of Jesus Christ for his church, and there's a process by which we grow in this, you can never use the Bible somehow 
to justify for yourself some platform for male dominance or chauvinism. There's no category for that in the scriptures. It's unbiblical. But there's a call to lead. And I love this statement that Kent Hughes uses in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. As he talks about the many-faceted call for men to love their wives. As you think about strength, like men look, like to be strong. Like we, we devote a lot of time to curls when we're younger, and we love to be strong. Well, at least the persona of it. But the Bible and biblical Christianity flips strength on its head in an unexpected way. Sound familiar? It's other than what the world defines as strength. And Ken Hughes put it this way. He says this real plainly. It takes a strong man to die. And the husband's is die. Die daily to yourself. The call to live with your wife in an understanding way is, is literally to, to be considerate, to be consumed with being considerate to your wife, to show her honor. Live with your wives in an understanding way, to dwell with knowledge. And so this is where it gets really tricky because we hear this command, all right, live with your wife in an understanding way. I'm like, that's exactly what I don't do. I don't understand my wife at all. From the beginning, this is like, this is my trouble spot. I don't get her. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe just maybe that's in God's design is what pushes us to a realm of dependence and faith because we can't trust in our own instincts to do what God has called us to do. You might say, God, you know my wife. You've put her together. You've given her to me so so help me, all caps. That's exactly what God would want. I don't know how to do this. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I've been married for 20, maybe 21 years this year, and I'm still very much growing and loving my wife. I think I've grown over the years. You can ask Kaylee. But it's a, it's a process by which we give ourselves, even to our own weakness, to say, Lord, the, the very thing that I don't know how to do, would you help me do? I think it honors God for that to be an outflow of our weakness. I don't understand. I, it's hard for me to dwell with knowledge because I don't understand we're wired differently. And maybe my background even makes it difficult. And this is dangerous too, but I would share this for you men who've been here for a while. You've probably heard something like this from me over the years. You should have conversations with your wife and put yourself in danger by asking the question, how can I love you better? Do you feel loved by me? How can I grow as a husband? That is dangerous, but remarkably biblical humility. But that's part of that dependence, too, is like I don't have in and of myself, even just the number, I mean, I could read a lot of books, and they might help some, but dependence upon God, dependence on my wife to help me be a good student of hers, dependence on one another is going to shape us and mold us over a lifetime that by God's grace, we're going to love our wives more like Christ loved the church a year from now, 10 years from now than we, than we do right now. So be deeply considerate with your wives. Consider what she needs to flourish. Consider her needs above your own. Consider how to lead her to Jesus in the moments when fear and anxiety arise. Consider how to enable her to use her gifts and abilities. Consider how to sacrifice for her today. Consider how to love her more like Jesus does. 
and live with your wife day by day in an understanding way. The other command, and I'm almost done, is show your wife honor as a joint heir, equal in value and calling. This is one of the parts of this text that really illustrates this issue of order isn't a value proposition. Because Peter says, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of... This is really radical language when you put yourself in first century Rome. Because women weren't heirs of things. They didn't inherit stuff. So God is saying, she's, she's an heir. She, she's, she's inheriting eternal life. An inheritance that doesn't fade away. It's undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. We saw that in chapter one. That's hers just like it's yours. So show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Husbands in first century Rome had all the rights. And if a woman is caught in adultery, the husband could kill her on the spot. If a wife found her husband committing adultery, she had no recourse. That's the kind of imbalance that Peter's speaking into. He's like, be considerate, like honor her, respect her, honor her because God has esteemed and honored her by saving her and making him her a part of his family. But show her honor. As an heiress of the grace of life, honor her, esteem her like any good father would. This is, this is really remarkable, but super helpful. Like any good father would, thinking about my own girls, if there was anybody that came along and tried to woo my daughters and didn't honor her, you can bet one of the things I'd say is like, you and I can't be friends. 100% unfriend you right now. That's what's happening here, because what happens is that the command to husbands isn't merely just do something, but there's an actual follow-up statement that if you don't do this, do you see what's going to happen? Go back there, 1 Peter 3, 7. They're heirs with you of the grace of life, but do these things, husband, be considerate, show honor, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Some translation will, will use the word communion. You don't honor a daughter of God, you won't have communion with God. It doesn't mean you'll lose your salvation. There's going to be static in the line. Your communion and relationship with God will be hindered. Now, if there ever was a significant consequence in the Christian life, I think that would be it. Honor my daughter, or you and I can't have communion day by day, moment by You can't expect to dishonor my daughter and somehow think you're going to honor me by coming to me via worship, prayer, service, or what have you. Your prayers, your ultimate communion will be hindered. As we close, this brings back into view the reality that for us as Christians, every human relationship has its center as a consideration of our relationship with God. And you might be in this room. This is an interesting message to to point you to the gospel message, the good news of Jesus. But let me just try to do it real briefly. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, like you've, maybe you've been around church, or maybe you know that you, you haven't surrendered your life, that Jesus isn't your king and increasingly your treasure, let me just share a couple things with you. It be that today God wants you to feel the ache of your inability to care for your wife or follow your husband because you've been trying to do it on your own. It might also be that if you're not married, you, 
You feel the ache and the pain of the example and brokenness of the examples you have seen or lack of example you've seen in your life. You've seen the, the wake of destruction, your own actions or the actions of others have left as we try to do this thing called life and even marriage on our own. And there's a sense of longing and ache that it leaves you with, a deep brokenness, destruction, maybe even division in your family. And I pray that in all of those feelings, all those real hurts, that your deep longing for change will drive you to look beyond yourself and look to Jesus Christ to save, secure, to rescue, restore, and to give you life because it can only be found in him. Just like the pursuit of beauty in this life is like chasing the wind, trying to find ultimate life and security in this life will be just the same. The chasing after the wind, elusive to our hands and all of our resources, run to Jesus Christ today and find in him water for your parched soul and all that ache and longing, I pray that you'd find him. The picture of the Bible is that there's good news because we deserve this. Like we deserve the full weight of condemnation unto death because of our sin. But Jesus became our sin as he went to Calvary so that we could become the righteousness of God through faith in him. Be made righteous today. Believe in him. For you married Christians, what does the world see when they look at your marriage? Do they see the difference that Jesus makes? Do they see a husband like given to laying his life down, loving, being considerate of, and honoring his wife? Do they see a wife arranging herself underneath her husband through great faith in God, adorning herself with real, lasting beauty? Are there echoes of the resurrected life in your home as you do these things unto God? If you're not married this morning, I pray as well you'd be reminded that if you pursue that, there's various things you can take away from this morning as those things that you should look at, you should look for in a man or a woman. And also if you remain single unto the glory of God for all of your days, you can be among those who can counsel even married people because you, you have firmly in view what the scriptures teach about marriage and various principles within it. But I love y'all and I pray that as people in this church, this family of faith, that the world will look at us, our pursuit of marriage, and the way we live out these principles, and they would say that they serve a God who's other than this world because they act in such a way that's other than this world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I'm thankful that even in the messages that left to myself, I wouldn't choose to preach. There's such great fruit. There's such great joy in, in letting your word uh, fall upon the hearts of your people. And Lord, I beg you that you would, you would grow, that you would protect the marriages in Crossway. I pray that increasingly so that the world would see the resurrection of Jesus at work in the lives and hearts of men and women in this place not so that we would get any sort of glory or accolades so that in all of it there'd be some platform by which we could point people to you. 
as the source for the change within us, as a source for any motivation to live not for ourselves, but for you who died and rose again on our behalf. Jesus, we thank you that you are alive, that you are resurrected, that you pray for us even now. You always live to intercede for us. And I'm thankful that the, the life that we so desperately need but can't find in ourselves is found in you. You are the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through you. And we thank you that if we are yours, that you've caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Father, we thank you for that truth. And I pray as we sing one last song, as we sing about the firm foundation that we have in your word and the work of Christ, that our feet would be squarely planted on Jesus as the one who gives grace in our moments of failure and also that same grace that empowers us to be different tomorrow than we are today. We love you. We thank you. We pray that you be honored as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go and stand. We'll sing.